0: ambiguous statement is the freedom to love. It's deliberately ambiguous, as you can probably hear in the way I've put that. It's about freedom and it's about love. In many ways we're not going to be able to enter into genuine relationships of love and care, kindness, compassion, until we are really traversing the path towards freedom. This path towards freedom is as you heard me say last night entirely what Buddhist thought and practice is about and it's trying to find that freedom freedom from the entrapment which I spoke about the being bound to sangsara the thing I didn't say to you last night was that sangsara in the original languages is not a noun, it's a verb and so it's actually we are samsara ing rather than anything else and the opposite can be nibbana-ing so, you have the choice. You can either Nibbana or samsara, depending on what you want to do. One holds the possibility of the genuine freedom to love, and one doesn't. One gets caught in all of the machinations and all of the stories about so-called love relationships. Um, I think very highly exemplified, actually, in the Greek distinctions between the forms of love that you have. Because in Greek... You have a distinction between Philos, the love of wisdom Eros, which is erotic love, obviously, which includes sexual love and then you have a later kind of manifestation called Agape which is actually to do with disinterested love the kind of love of God for his creation In a way, we're not speaking of any of those forms of love in what we're talking about and I will explore that much, much further with you as we go through the week Before we really generally start tonight what I want to do is read you a short quote Again, it's the Buddha, it's from the Pali Canon. And the Buddha says here the thought manifests the word, the word manifests the deed. The deed develops into a habit, and habit hardens into a character. So watch the thoughts and its ways with care, and let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. So, this watching with care is about learning to love in itself watching what we're doing in other words out of genuine care and genuine love for others um, we actually engage in this practice of beginning to look at the what is going on for us in that little short quote that I've given you is uh, this particular phrase and I'll just repeat it again the thought manifests as the word, the word manifests as the deed and the deed hardens into a habit uh, therein lies the crux of the problem Um, And I'm going to talk a little bit about the problem again, because I think we really have to understand the notion of what samsara means in a real Buddhist context, and particularly from our psychological perspective, as to how we end up, in a sense, having this hardened character, almost fractured and fossilized, fractured but fossilized, perhaps I should say, um, rather than being fluid and adaptable and being... A movement and a fluidity, and possessing a fluidity which can move with the events of the world, which can move with what happens. So much of our misery is caused by having a hardened mind, by having a hardened character. Um, How often, even if we don't actually voice it, do we tell ourselves, oh, I couldn't possibly do that? Or, I couldn't possibly be that way. I'm not like that at all. All of this really is kind of bespeaks the fact that it says you can't change. Um, and really, in a sense, that's the opposite of what Buddhist practice is really, and meditative practice is really trying to make you aware of, that change is always possible. That this fossilization itself is, in a way, part of a narrative story in which we inhabit. Um, and we close ourselves down over a progressive period of time, generally as we get older. We close ourselves down and our possibilities become more and more limited as we do so. So it ends up sometimes with the frightening syndrome of not even being able to step out of the house because of the fears and the possibilities of what might happen to you outside. And it's this closure, this affecting of closure in a sense that makes us dead before we're dead. Um, I often quote, again, something I often quote, because I think it's such a wonderful quote, one by Benjamin Franklin, which is, says, most people are dead by 20, they're just not buried till 70. <laughs> yeah. Because that's actually what happens to us. We close our lives down in such a way that in a sense we become almost like zombies walking through the world, not being able to appreciate, not being able to accept, not being able to change. However, change is going on all around us. Remember that part of what we're trying to do, even you know, even in this particular approach, which was approaching it through the, through the pathways of love and compassion, was through sight still trying to gain insight into the causes of dukkha, impermanence, and not-self. And I shall go through all of those as we go through the week. Impermanence is written into the contract, I'm afraid to say, <laughs> It's written into the contract of life. Change goes on all around us. We can't, affect, you know, we can't affect anything. Anything that we try to do to inhibit the flow of change is trying to build, if you like, your house on shifting sand. You know, trying to create the walls without foundations. There are no foundations. The sand, sand shifts. Um, the sands of the world are continuously shifting with the winds of change. Um, No matter what we do, any attempt to create a stable, secure world is somewhat spurious. Um, There is no security. It's a frightening thought, isn't it, in many ways. There is no ultimate security because change is always there. Now that can be frightening, but in another sense, if we really take this on board, it can also be freeing. It can be liberating. It can open us to all sorts of possibilities and perhaps a desire to flow and move with what is changing, as opposed to resistance. And remember I was saying so much last night of our problems are indicative of our attempts to resist what ultimately we cannot resist. And that can be just the ordinary minutiae of your daily life. You know, just resisting that which has to be done. I went through this last night with you. In that resistance, there is an attempt to stultify what has to be done attempt to avoid what has to be done and it comes down that we end up having to do it we end up having to change we end up having to flow with what is otherwise we end up as kind of dinosaurs um, given that the world is changing now I'm not saying all change is for good that's not not kind of the motive of this story but there is change and we can't affect it most of it is completely outside of our control in a fact, that's one of the situations we're in, is a degree of powerlessness. We can't even affect our own lives a lot of the time, that it changes outside of our control. So any attempt to control the greater forces is even more um, kind of a fantasy that we are living. And so, in our fear, and let's never underestimate that, perhaps I'll bring this up in one evening as a separate topic, in our fear we attempt to close things down, we attempt to solidify them. Um, As I say, in the end you cannot solidify because there is such a thing called mortality uh, which none of us can escape um, at all. And so mortality is that which is hanging over all of us. And for many, of course, that, you know, certainly in the past, and you read philosophers who said this sort of thing, it's actually mortality which makes life meaningless. Well, actually, in the Buddhist sense, it's mortality which makes life meaningful. It is the fact that we are mortal and have choices that we can make, and if we make the right choices, it makes life, in a sense, dynamic and meaningful as we go through it. You know, in, a bit, in a sense, we're a bit like bees with meaning. We go through life. Picking it up, you know, like pollen, as we do. And, and as long as we're alive, our life doesn't have a meaning as such. Um, as one particular philosopher wrote, he said that the only, you know, when somebody says the meaning of our life, they're generally writing our obituary, because yeah, it's somebody else summing it up. The meaning of the life is in the living of it. Now, we can either be open to that dynamic of movement and change and meaning which is fundamental and so important. It's important in the minutiae of our experience. We tend to see it in big things, particularly when we start talking about religion and spirituality. It's got to be there in the big things, and it isn't. Certainly in Buddhist terms, meaning is in the minutiae, in the detail of our daily lives, where we gather and garner meaning on a daily, hourly, minute basis. Uh, And that is what brings meaning into life. And that is what also brings love into our life, when we can actually begin to see and to appreciate and to to interact with what is, instead of being closed off and turned around looking into ourselves. So we can either operate from this neurotic basis of being turned into ourselves, and actually, in a way, I think the Buddha, if he was a contemporary psychoanalyst, would probably... um, actually diagnoses us as all being irredeemably neurotic. You know, this is a kind of neurotic disease that we suffer from a lot of the time. We're caught in patterns of neurosis. And that pattern of neurosis, in a way, has that term sangsarering attached to it. Psychologically, that's what we're doing. Remember last night I was saying that we rise and fall every day, possibly every hour, through six particular realms that we can be reborn in. And these are psychological patternings. Even more so, the profounder description that the Buddha gives us of the psychological patterning is something that many of you will know of, probably heard loads of times, something called dependent origination in Buddhist thought. Dependent origination is actually a story, a narrative which relates how we pattern every moment um, and what we bring into it so that we continue to sangsara. And it's in a sense, by understanding that patterning, that we can begin to break it and then possibly allow ourselves to be free. Now, that patterning starts where I started last night talking to you about, where I started talking to you about avidya, when I started talking about ignorance. However, ignorance is not the full end of the story. Remember, I was problematizing that whole notion of ignorance, unless we hear it in this correct way of ignoring, not wanting to know in a sense blinding ourselves even if you have all the information you probably still won't change <laughs> you know, you've handed out all the information and there you are still stuck in it but you've now got lots of information and um, that's the difference and because it's so deeply, deeply rooted now I'm painting a slightly more pessimistic picture than it is But it is very, very deeply rooted. And this ignorance actually has content as well. Um, It has content which is sensual desire. It has content, the desire to remain in being, for example. And it has content of what actually traditionally it's called views. Um, I just call it opinionatedness. We have deep levels of opinions which are sedimented in our psyche. Sometimes you don't even know about them because they're so deeply conditioned, um, often by language. Um, our languages bring us a particular view of the world which we end up believing in, um, such as you know, nouns are things, therefore they don't change. <coughs> However, that's not the case. So we're being presented with a particular picture of the world through the deeply, <coughs> deeply sedimented you know, aspects of our psyche, ignorance, sensual desire, the desire to be, and that's kind of almost a desire to be forever, really, unless you're on a bad day. <laughs> and finally, views or opinions, which are, as I say, really constructive. They're constructing a lot of the narratives of the world which you inhabit. These are so deeply rooted, they're almost, you could almost call them human nature, except in a sense... Buddhist thought doesn't believe there is an inherent, intrinsic human nature at all. The Buddha is liberating us even from that idea. He's saying we can behave wholesomely or we can behave unwholesomely. And all the roots of unwholesome and wholesome behavior are already there in our psyche. You've got to want to let go and want to develop the other in order to make progress. You've got to identify... The unwholesome. You've got to see it in action. You've got to know it. phrase I've been using during the meditations, during the day, you've got to befriend your demons. You've got to look at them. You've got to see them. You've got not to reject them, push them away. But in a sense, begin to see them. It's only in that full acknowledgement and that full recognition that the letting go can occur. In many ways, I tend to drop this word letting go these days uh, and really saying if the letting go is occurring, it's letting us go rather than we letting them go you know, it tends to be that in other words we're creating the causes and conditions for these things to no longer buggers in any way to no longer you know, hang on like limpets to our psyche or parasites or whatever metaphor you want to use here um, but in other words we've changed the constituents of ourselves so much that these things let us go, it's like habits dropping away in the sense that it doesn't have to be the direct volition for them to to, to give up, in a sense they give up on us after a while, once we've sowed the seeds and conditions for that to occur. So this ignorance is deeply, deeply rooted, and in fact so much so, these four things I've given you, the ignorance, the sensual desire, the um, desire to be, and also the views... Uh, actually a synonym for liberation is actually when they have vanished, when they have gone, when they are no longer there. In fact, one of the epithets of the Buddha is one who has overcome the Asavas. And that's the technical term for these four things. You know, those are, the, if you like, the final hurdles to be jumped um, for liberation to have occurred. And in a way, that's what you're working on is their eradication. Now, coming back to the quote, when we're talking about habit... Well, actually, in the chain of dependent arising, the next thing to arise immediately dependent on ignorance and those four things which are the contents of the ignorance are something called sankharas. Um, sanskaras or Sankaras, depending on which language you want to speak, Sanskrit or English. Um, I'll stick with Pali here, uh, which is sankhara. Sankharas are deeply, deeply ingrained habits. They are. Constructions—they're actually technically called formations, karmic formations. They're the way that we've formed our lives. Yeah. In traditional Buddhist terms, that is over past lifetimes. Forget about past lifetimes. Think about how what you've done over this lifetime informing forming who you, what you are at this moment in time. You know that can seem like a lot of past lifetimes in one lifetime. The Tibetan depiction of it, and as I said last night, I mentioned there is a Tibetan depiction of all of this, Mm -hmm. and you can see it on the outer rim if you ever have a look at the depiction of it. And you'll find that this particular element, the sankaras, is depicted by a potter molding uh, pots, bringing them up. Some are all sort of wobbly, and some are nicely formed. Um, So it depends on our actions what we form in terms of the karmic formations. Um, these are our dispositions. You know, these are so deeply rooted, so so deeply rooted. You now they have their connection directly to avidya, uh, to ignorance and the contents of that ignorance. Um, so much so, do you think they are yourself. This is do you believe your habits are yourself. You know? And the sure way to have that proven to you is when somebody challenges one of them <laughs> and says, You've got this bad habit. And you go saying, yeah, Even if you don't say it aloud, you might go, Well, that's the way I am. <laughs> you know, Again, almost implying it can't change. You know, but it's been formed. That quotation makes it very clear. Thought becomes an action, and an action becomes a habit, and a habit becomes a character. That's how it's formed. Our characters are, in a sense, fossilizations of our habits. That's all they are. Um, It's almost like surprise yourself and do something non-habitual. From time to time we do. From time to time we break free of these habits and conditioning and do something quite, quite different. But a lot of the time we don't, which is why we keep falling back into the same mess that we generally do. Why we have proclivities to engage in certain relationships and, and to go wrong in the same ways and to do certain things and to think in certain patterns, they are patternings. They are ways that our minds become patterns and they are ways that our actions are patterned. But remember, of course, that the defining thing is action. Yeah? Here, action is simply, really, an English translation of the word karma which doesn't have all these metaphysical connotations that you often hear about in the West. It's just action that has consequence. Any action has a consequence. You cannot be in the world without acting. So therefore your actions always have consequences. Even the person who sits in their hermit cave in the Himalaya and does nothing is still acting. you You cannot avoid it. In a way, again, this was one of the Buddha's great contribution certainly to Indian thought at the time because there were whole bunches of people wandering around northern India thinking that they could escape by not doing anything yeah. and the Buddha was pointing out sometimes quite sarcastically to them um, that actually you couldn't escape doing things you know, even your not doing was a doing you know, and in fact even in courts of law you have doctrines of what's called acts and omissions you know, omissions are sometimes equivalent to an act So it's no excuse in law that you say, I didn't know. (laughs) Well, you should have known, is the kind of (laughs) response to that. And so, really, the kind of short story to this is that we cannot be in this world without acting. So therefore, take care, as the Buddha says, out of love for yourself and for others in the ways that you act. Because otherwise, without mindfulness in our actions, without that awareness... We continue to go through the world, as I suggested last night, with this kind of wake of debris behind of us behind us, sometimes unwittingly, not necessarily maliciously. I think there's very, very few who go through the world with a with a very malicious mind. Most of us do it fairly unwittingly, usually out of kind of unconscious procedures, unconscious sedimentations in our psyches, which cause us to behave in certain ways. Which we've never become aware of whatsoever, and so that really is the content of the sankharas. The sankharas are just these habitual formations, and they can either be good habits or they're bad habits. And the best description I ever had of samsaraing was it was one vast bad habit. <sighs> you know, that's what we're engaged in—just a huge bad habit a lot of the time, um, and we continue to perpetuate that habit. Now, in a way, this is one of the challenges. Of the path, one of the challenges of the path, particularly in relationship to what I've been talking about so far in this course, is the attempt, at least, to replace our bad habitual behaviour with good behaviour. You know, instead of getting irritable and nasty and angry, can you? Can you? And I do pose this as a question. Can you, instead of falling into those habits of irritability and anger and all of the negative emotions, I mean, those are just examples, there are many, many more you can think of, can you replace it with kindness? Can you look at the person who irritates you on belief at your place of work and actually behave in a more kindly fashion towards them, still possibly perceiving the irritation with it? Because actually the challenge is in in the initial stage to start behaving well, not necessarily having to have this myth of authenticity that we often operate under in the West. You know, I can't do it until it feels authentic. Well, you could wait the whole of your life (laughs) for that to happen. You know, as was put by one particular Tibetan teacher with a with a student who was talking to him and says, Yeah, I can't do this, I just don't feel compassionate. Said, what do you mean feel compassionate? Just behave compassionately. Yeah, you know, it's nothing about feeling whatsoever. You know. You could, as I say, wait the whole of your life for the genuine feeling to arise. Well, hopefully you won't if you start to engage in the behaviour. This is why traditionally when we have the path that's laid out in traditional cultures, which is generally seen, like I gave you last night, as Sila, Samadhi, and Panya. Sila, morality, Samadhi to do with meditation, to do with the development cultivation, often using bhavanar as a synonym for it, and then Panya. But actually, they start even further back than that. They talk about generosity and the importance of generosity and how that really is moulding what then comes later. So if you go to traditional Buddhist culture like Sri Lanka or Thailand, Burma, even Tibetan communities sometimes, what you'll hear is people talking about generosity and the fundamental importance of generosity. And just to give you an idea of that, this is a very short quote again I picked out the Pali Khan here. It says, this is the Buddha again speaking. He says, if you knew as I do the power of giving, you would not let a single meal pass without sharing some of it. And actually, if you go to Asian cultures, you'll see that very firmly instantiated in a lot of traditional Asian cultures. Um, I have had the embarrassing moment, I don't know whether many of you have travelled in Asia, but I've had the embarrassing moment sometimes of sitting in a carriage on in Indian railways and a poor family, infinitely worse off than I would ever be in the whole of my life, probably, sharing a meal with me, you know, out of their generosity and you can't but not share it with them because it's given with such grace and with such love often in those situations but it's very embarrassing to be in that situation but it is something which is there in Asian culture which is often lacking in our culture you know, being as we are often falling back on self so often not to say that and they don't want to romanticise the East at all because it has its own problems but in the East, this is one thing they don't seem to suffer from. Um, the problem with generosity. Giving is kind of written often into the culture. And so generosity is where it starts. Generosity is training. And why is it seen as such a basic training? Because it's seen as reducing some of those habits of self-grasping. You know, to give means to let something go. Yeah. To give of yourself, perhaps. Even if you don't have goods or money or whatever to give. And in a way, this is helping to reduce our sense of self-grasping. Our grasping, which is so fundamental, which the Buddha identifies, actually it's a complex of craving and grasping, which keeps us tied to a lot of our habitual behaviour. And so this is helping to sever the bonds that keep us tied to that behaviour. It's very behavioural yeah i didn't there's any hesitation in saying that a lot of what goes on in ordinary daily life is training your behavior this is why we started off on friday night talking about precepts as rules of training they're not absolutes but they're ways of training our way, self ways of beginning to orientate ourselves around the world in a completely different wa- way and hopefully excuse me hopefully that eventually becomes naturalized. It becomes natural and spontaneous to want to do that. And in fact, sometimes with all these forms of virtues that we're talking about, love, compassion, kindness, generosity, all of these things, sometimes, even if you haven't got a clue what they're really about, apart from the old spontaneous instance where it arises, try and engage in the behavior that goes with it. And sometimes you'll get a feeling for what it's like to be there, to be doing that, to be engaged in generous behaviour, to be engaged in kindly behaviour. And as I said, even in the place sometimes where everything's saying, I want to be irritated, <laughs> you know, in those instances, um, sometimes you can start to begin to just begin to get a minutiae of experience about what it would be like for that to be natural and to arising naturally. Just to get a glimpse of it. So those are the sankharas. The sankharas are these habits and what we do is twofold in a way. Not only we do a meditative training, familiarizing ourselves with the bad habits, seeing what is arising, You know, not to, as I said last night, lacerate ourselves. This is not about that. Too much brutalization goes on. This whole path, and particular path I'm trying to outline to you this week, is not a path of brutalization. It's not a way of further condemning and criticising yourself. It's also not a path of self-indulgence. It's not to indulge those bad habits, those bad traits, but to acknowledge that they're there, and in a sense, to befriend them. This This is becoming realistic about who you are and where you are. Again, I'm reminding you of something I said last night. It's only from that launch pad of the real acceptance of who and what you are at this moment that that genuine movement can take place. In a sense, we're still expiating the karma of the past. We're still having to do that. We can't deny it. We can't push it away. All we can do is look at it and, and perhaps deal with some of it. Deal with some of the consequences of it. We do not escape the past. And that's what we're talking about. We do not escape it. It's there anyway. It's present in your own psyche. And undealt with it will become the future. And what we're talking about is dealing with it so the future isn't determined, in a way. Karma isn't simply determinism. It's only determinism when it's not dealt with. That's when it becomes deterministic. But... Even that is not so deterministic as it might sound because karma is never an end, it's always a beginning. It's always a beginning. In other words, we're always responding to karma. We're always responding. We can respond well to it, or we can respond badly to it. If we respond well, perhaps we might put the epithet good karma to it. If we respond badly, it might be just a perpetuation of bad consequences. That's going to continue. But it's never at an end. So when somebody says, you know, this is somebody's bad karma, it's a load of nonsense. Yeah, you know, in a sense. And I'm really putting that strongly because it is. To say somebody has got bad karma is nonsense. It's how they deal with it that makes it whether it's bad or good karma or not. You know? And in a way, one has to overcome the arrogance of saying that looking at others and saying, oh, it's good or bad karma that they're in that position, and at ourselves. All we can deal with is what is arising here. And that is the contents of the Sankaras. We're dealing with those formations that have come up. Who we are today is dependent on who we were yesterday and the day before and the day before that and the year before that and the year before that. And it stretches right back to our birth, and as I said, in traditional cultures, it stretches back beyond that. Now, if you don't want to take that on board, and there's no necessity to, really, to deal with this, then you can see it within this lifetime. and see that we have created one huge tangle. You know, remember I started off last night and saying, who's going to untangle the tangle? Yeah. Well, only you, as I said, can untangle the tangle. But it's understanding the knot. It's understanding some of the tangle that we've got ourselves in, and seeing how it has arisen. So dependent on ignorance, dependent on the contents of that ignorance in terms of the desire to be and the the, the opinions and everything else that I've outlined so far gives rise generally to unpleasant sankharas. To unpleasant sankharas. So how are you going to deal with it? Well, the only way to deal with it is with action and acceptance and understanding of what's going on and movement forward in creation. what we do. So never underestimate that what you do in ordinary life is equally if not much more important than what goes on here. This is training. What goes on in these rooms is training. Nothing else. Um, When I lived in Sri Lanka the teacher at the meditation (laughs) centre used to um, check up on people every so often. I mean, there used to be very long retreatments then. Sometimes they would stay six months, nine months, or so on. But he used to call them in for a while. In a while, and you know, it was in a beautiful hill hill area of Sri Lanka, you know, which is surrounded by you know, tea plantations and coffee plantations, just overlooking the hills. No electricity, um, no running water, just a well get the water from and every so often so, so it's idyllic conditions you see mongoose running around every so often wild boar and all this sort of stuff and every so often he used to call people in saying feeling calm and they'd go oh yeah am really starting to settle into it now you know, now I've been here six months I'm really getting the hang of it so if you're really that calm and then go down to candy <laughs> <laughs> which is like a typical Asian town you know, just chaos and noise and dirt and everything else and he so if you calm down there then you're learning something <laughs> you know, it's very much easier to be calm in a beautiful situation uh, than it is actually operating on the ground in real life day to day interactions in, you know, in cities anywhere or you know, with ordinary people or even with your family it's much easier to be calm in those idyllic situations than it is in ordinary life, is what I'm saying. And so what goes on in any meditation center, any retreat center, is simply a training. It's not an end. You know? The Buddha always makes this clear. Meditation is not an end, it is a training. You know? And so what we do outside becomes the real litmus test of how much we have achieved, if we want to use that word, and I hesitate to use that word I must admit, here how much we have changed how skillfully wholesomely, effectively we can deal with what is thrown at us in one of the poems of Miller Aper he says, you know, the goal is to be happy minded no matter what he says, I'm happy all the time (laughs) lucky devil (laughs) no matter what is happening matter all this stuff going on in the world it says I remain happy minded because the mind is balanced you know, it's not oblivious of what's going on but it's balanced and can hold you know, even the tragedies and that mind not to be you know, swung off balance at all and so out of the sankharas we in a sense create sankhara or the whole process of samsaraing It comes into being out of our habitual dispositions. And so what I've been talking to you about tonight so far is about changing behavior, beginning to see the wellsprings of our non-compassionate, non-kindly behavior, often rooted in unskillful habits and dispositions that we have accumulated over a period of time and we think are ours you know, what we're engaged in I use a phrase I used last night, what we're engaged in many ways is an archaeology of the soul you know, to unearth these things not to, as I say, chastise ourselves and criticise ourselves, but to really see them and let them go or to let them let us go, which is a far better way of looking at it now in the traditional um, way of interpreting um, dependent origination, what happens next is there is consciousness arising as the next part of the chain of dependent origination. Now, I will point out at this point, at this stage, that what we're talking about is a chain of dependencies, not a chain of causation. Um, I often see written in popular textbooks of Buddhism that it's um, it's actually the Buddhist theory of causation. It's not. It's an idea of dependencies. One thing are dependent on Ignorance arises sankharas. Dependent on the sankharas arises consciousness, and so on and so forth throughout the whole chain. We talked about it as being a chain of causation, it would look very strange, because the last two in the chain are, you know, um, birth and then old age and death. You know It would be very diff- difficult in a way, other than perhaps in poetic English, to say that birth caused old age and death. It doesn't. Dependent on being born, old age and death will arise. And, and that is what's being talked about here. So it's a chain of dependencies, and one has to get that very clear. And what we're attempting to do is break this dependent arising in our practice for this love and kindness and compassion and insight and clarity to shine through. When we're caught up in this, we might get glimpses, but we don't get the whole picture. This is a way of helping us to develop an understanding of what is going on in order to encourage us to, in a sense, break the chain. And there's a particular point at which the chain is, in a sense, more vulnerable. And I'll come on to that as we go through. So consciousness always arises dependent on habits and dispositions and then ignorance, going backwards to it. And... Consciousness itself is not a thing in Buddhist thought. It itself is a dependent arising. It arises dependent on causes and conditions. And in fact, you cannot have, as they do in some other Indian systems of thought, like Advaita, for example, Advaita Vedanta, which some of you might be familiar with, you cannot have pure consciousness in Buddhist thought. Certainly not in early Buddhist thought. Later Buddhist thought becomes a bit more difficult. But in early Buddhist thought, there is no such thing as pure consciousness. Consciousness is always a consciousness of something. It always has an object. And so if you like, world and consciousness arise together. Yeah? And dependent on the quality of that consciousness, whether it is a wholesome consciousness or an unwholesome consciousness, depends on whether the world is nibbana or samsara. Yeah? So, in other words, with wholesome consciousness arising, the world is nibbana, with unwholesome consciousness arising, it is samsara. Um, I think, for the majority of us, I think we know where we are, which is generally in the samsara bit, <laughs> rather than nibbana, because you know the quality of consciousness is not that wholesome a lot of the time, because it's actually affected by a tremendous range of unwholesome mental activity that goes with consciousness. Consciousness itself, by the way, and perhaps I'll finish off on this in a few minutes, consciousness, by the way, is never alone. It's never on its own. Buddha Gosu, who's a big commentator in the 5th century, says that consciousness is like a king. It always arrives with a retinue. (laughs) In other words, a whole load of baggage trains that come up behind it. And so it always arises with mental events an awful lot of which are very unwholesome mental events which are arising at the same time as consciousness. And so that is the why the quality of consciousness is often of a very poor quality. It's very poor in quality. Yeah, that we perceive the world in such a way that you know, our conscious activity moulds it in such a way. Now, in a sense, this is no saying no more, and I put it in a slightly technical way this evening, but it's no more than saying you're in a mood all the time. <laughs> you know, you know, the moment you wake up in the morning, you're in a mood. And this is really what's being said. And dependent on that mood, depends on what your world is like. There are other factors as well, such as the stories we tell ourselves about that mood, you know, to go justify it by you know kind of the narratives that we inhabit to, to explain why you're in a grumpy mood when you get up in the morning or why you feel elated when you get up, you know, perhaps not so common, but nevertheless, um, it's really ex- a sense beginning to show us a sense of our moodedness. In fact, the world as we see it depends on our moodedness. It's not simply out there. You know, the Buddha makes this very clear in the opening part of the Dhammapada. In the Dhammapada, he says, mind is the forerunner of all things. Yeah. dependent on the quality of the mind he says, depends on what happens if it's an unwholesome mind he says there would, then unhappiness will follow it yeah. if it's a wholesome mind then something else will arise something which is wholesome and joyful and happy and loving too and so this this is really expressing and, and in a sense um, emphasizing this notion that the mind is imprinting our realities the reality simply isn't out there this might give us pause for thought because it might take us right back to what I said at the beginning we're full of opinions about the world a lot of us don't even know where they come. from. I certainly don't, I'll own up immediately I don't know know where a lot of the opinions that I've formed about often quite mundane things have come from They've probably come from my background, from my conditioning, from my language, my parents, possibly stuff I've read. But they are there and they are in a sense moulding that world that you see. We mould it through the narratives that we tell ourselves. We mould it very, very strongly. Whether you want to tell yourself the story about your unhappiness or the story about your happiness or whatever it is, you can always create a narrative to justify the mood that you're in. And so it's breaking through these narratives, beginning to see the paucity of a lot of this narrative structure that we inhabit. So that we can begin to open up onto a genuine responsiveness to what is, rather than just be inhabiting a story, a fantasy in our heads. Actually, what Sangsara is is not just a one big bad habit, it's also one huge fantasy as well, that we inhabit. Unfortunately, it's an unhappy fantasy, most of the time. You know, that's that we're inhabiting. And actually, a lot of the time, relishing it. Heaven knows why. Now, it's about the ability to let go of these unhappy fantasies that we have, that we hold on to. But, and perhaps I'll finish here. There's one big proviso about this. You've got to want to let go of your unhappiness. You really have. Um, without that desire to, in a sense, the positive use of desire, there's lots of negative connotations to the use of desire, but there's a paradox of desire in Buddhism, is the desire to be free is actually a wholesome desire, where the desire for sensual things, the desire for others, and all of the manifestations of that ordinary form of desire is entrapping. But the desire for freedom in itself isn't. It's wholesome. But you really have to desire that freedom. That sounds an odd thing to say. I said this to, again to a group the other night. It sounds an odd thing to say. Do you want to be free? But in a way, often we can say it, but our behaviour is militating against it. What we actually do, and what we actually think, and what we actually engage in, is often militating directly against saying, "Yes, I want to be free," and then you fall back into a habit pattern immediately. Now, and, Putting it in these stark contrasts contrast, and obviously it isn't as easy as saying, oh yes, I want to be free and therefore I'm going to engage in all the behaviour. It's not as easy as that, of course, but in a sense I'm trying to point out to you that there really has to be that motivation, that motivation towards liberation. The texts talk about it very, very strongly, particularly some Tibetan texts, when they talk about one has to have a revulsion with samsara. That's not a revulsion with life, by the way, so don't hear it as that way at all it's not meant to be a revulsion with life it's a revulsion with my own pettiness with my own habits with my own stuckness in this world yeah. even the general philosopher Nietzsche had an idea of this when he talked about the Ubermensch and the Ubermensch, the, over, the overman the man who, actually Nietzsche's definition of it was the man who'd overcome everything petty in himself you yeah. know and in a way, sometimes I often think when I've read Nietzsche that he models it on the Buddha because he talks a lot about the Buddha in, that, in, in some of his texts. And so it's this desire to really want to overcome these entrapping conditions. And I'm sure we all know them. You know when you're in them. Yeah. Yeah. You know when you're into that petty-mindedness, when we're into that completely habitual formation. Sometimes, slightly after it's occurred, uh, and then we get, of course, the whole Western guilt syndrome creeping in you know, about it. You know. right. you, you've done it and now you can feel really sorry and now by making it worse by beating yourself up about it. You know, and again, I'm over-egging it to, to, to kind of make a point here. Uh, in other words, two, two wrongs don't make a right in this case. You know, you've done something wrong and it's right to feel perhaps ashamed about it, but it's not necessary to keep on lacerating yourself because if we do it to ourselves, and this is where, definitely where I'm going to end, <laughs> if we do it to ourselves, there's no doubt we're going to do it to another. If we lacerate ourselves, we're going to lacerate others. And it comes right back to where I started. If we can love ourselves, not in a self-indulgent way, but in the ways that we've been doing throughout today, wishing ourselves to be filled with loving-kindness, to be free of dangers, you know, to be well in body and mind, you know, and, in a sense, to be in ease and peace. To be at ease and to be at peace. That is not self-indulgence. That's a completely different way of orienting our own thoughts about ourselves. In other words, wishing ourselves well in this world. And if we can do that genuinely, then perhaps we can do it for others. Okay, I think I've said enough tonight. <laughs> so. As usual, you have the choice. You can either ask questions (laughs) or raise points that you want to say. Or we can do something else, but I'm not going to specify that (laughs) here. Yes? Um, I know the theory that thoughts create actions, create deeds, create habits, and um, so by doing the meta-practice and practicing those thoughts, I understand the theory that that should change things. Mm. But I've got, I've got quite a of scepticism. And I just wondered what your experience of doing the meta practices in your life. You know, not, not the theory, but the, but the mm. actual experience of it. Well, my experience of it is it... I mean, the simple answer is it changes things, it shifts things. Yeah, it really does shift things. I mean, I can... Without kind of going too much into it. I mean, I can look back at my own history and see how things have shifted tremendously through doing this particular practice. Um, Because it's oriented myself... For one thing, it started to eradicate that great heavy weight of Western guilt that we often feel. It's helped to turn into myself in a way which is positive and not negative, and looking at myself and then being able to share it with others that positivity that comes out of that and i really do and that kind of phrase i finally that I concluded the talk on i really mean because i think i mean it because it comes out of my experience if you can do it for yourself you can do it for others that even if it makes you pause and i'm not kind of claiming anything about myself but even if it just makes you pause for a second when somebody is perhaps getting on your nerve and saying look, I'm not going to go down the route of being irritable. I'm going to be, try and be kind to this person. Not in a patronising way, but in a sense that that person, even if they're irritating you or if they're angry with you, are coming out of their own problems. Yeah? Like I said last night, there's nothing personal in it. And if I can orient myself in a way which actually helps to soothe that a little bit by being kinder, and kinder doesn't necessarily always mean be being soppy. I don't mean that at all. Um, in fact I'll talk about this probably tomorrow night sentimentalism and these ideas um, that I think that shows a movement forward when you can when you can actually begin to change things for yourself in your orientation towards another's anger, towards your own irritation towards them and all those things it's very practical I think in just changing the way that you look at the world now, that's, that's my experience of it and it really does you know I think I made a claim on the first night. I'm going to stop a second. I was going to say something else, but I'm going to stop a second and say that it really is a way of knowing the world. You know, that metta, as a practice, if done um, over a protracted period of time, and not claiming any shortcuts for any of this, if done over a protracted period of time, or into the way that you see things in the world. You see them through the eye of kindness, you see them through the eyes of love, and perhaps eventually compassion... You do not see them through all the normal stuff that we go on. Not all the time, but even if you only do that a small percentage of the time, it's actually a big achievement, I think, in ordinary life. I don't get a response to your question. And is it, is it enough to do the phrases, or do you, do you need to. Um, I mean, you're saying be creative, maybe you mm. need to be more creative than just creating and phrases. Yes, I mean, there's a lot going on. I mean, I haven't delved into it so far. Actually, we'll do it as we go through the week. Um, the Creativity is actually, yes. Initially, you've got to hear... Those are the traditional phrases or interpretations of them, the ones I've given you. You've got to hear those phrases, first of all, and then you've got to, in a sense, interpret them and put them into language that really resonates for you. There's no point in having in, in, in these kind of fossilised ways. I don't think they are. I mean, I've tried to put them into English, which is at least hopefully has some resonances with us. Um, But you've got to create them into something which you can really respond to and really relate to. And hopefully, in a way, they act a bit like um, the grit in an oyster in creating a pearl, if you get them right. Because they will create emotions. And those emotions themselves can then be the sources of the things that you look at. And to actually cultivate and use as the objects of concentration themselves um, the emotions which are arising in association with this, particularly is in the practice that you can use that you know, we've been doing today. If you can, for example, picture yourself. Doesn't matter what age. Doesn't matter whether it's present or whether it's past or whatever. And really, in a sense, um, start to develop those phrases towards yourself. And that's what I've been suggesting all day that you do, and hopefully with some practice, and we've done it for a whole day, that you begin to get some inklings of some emotional quality starting to arise about it, where they don't become just repetition. You know? Also, there's pacing in the way you say it to yourself. You've got to find your own pace, your own rhythm. You might want to repeat one phrase again and again and again. Lesser for some of the others. You know? So it's, it's finding, as I say, the creativity within the practice in using those phrases, developing them, moulding them, looking at the emotions arising out of them, using perhaps some phrases more than the other, you know, I, I think that's what I mean by the creativity in it. Yeah. If I'm not English, would you recommend to translate the phrase in my own language? Yeah, of course. Yes. It sounds awful. <laughs> 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 English, it, isn't nice. it doesn't sound that. Oh, so well. Well, perhaps you have to stick to the English if it doesn't sound nice in your own language. Um, but, yeah, I mean, if you can, use it in your own language, because obviously your first language is the language you naturally often hear when, when you're you know, speaking to yourself, if you like, and, watch it, and this is what you're doing. You know, if you feel your English is good enough to really resonate with those phrases, use them in the English if you don't like the sound of them in your own language. <laughs> yeah. Mm, I have a problem with the notion that that by doing generous acts you create generous feeling or that the act comes before the feeling. Uh, I've spent my whole life pretending to be generous and maybe sometimes being generous but most of the time as I look at my own motives for generosity they're quite selfish. It might be desire to be loved or, or not wanting to challenge, not wanting to rock the boat, mm-hmm. doing what my parents said. And one of the beauties of meta that I found when I started a few years ago was to that I occasionally very rarely I actually uh, got in touch with true generosity, which mm-hmm. is so different than the generosity that I practiced my whole life mm-hmm. well that 's why, in a sense, that the two have to go together when I was saying about um, the generosity sometimes giving you an inkling about what the feeling might be of doing it. Yeah? I'm not saying you can just go through just doing that. In the absence, as it often is actually in traditional cultures, in the absence of actually having the time to sit down and do things like meta meditation and things like that, sometimes you know, all people can do is actually go through the activities of being generous. That is all. We are fortunate in the West, and we're much more closely placed, I think, to you know, the, more, the monastic side Buddhism, where we have a bit more leisure, we can do both. Sometimes the, the feeling is going to be absent, and in the absence of the feeling, still try to engage in generous behavior. However, if you've got the time, which, as you are saying, you have, um, and, and can practice, then do the two together. Engage in the generous behavior, and be engaged in meta. Practice and all the feelings, and the, perhaps hopefully the genuine feelings that arise through that practice. So the two go together. Really, um, it's never an either-or in Buddhism. You know, all we're saying is, in the absence of the space, the time to go through the, tr- the extensive training, really, which it does create. It you know, really needs to create the genuine feelings out of it, then engage in the behaviour, because at least. Part of the karmic activity, the active part of it, is, you know, is wholesome. In that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's a little. Um, I came um, on this retreat because I wanted to do something different, and someone I know had been on this particular one, mm-hmm. and um, I did read an awful lot of that just enough to not get a of it. And um, my question is about the amount of meditation in the city. Mm-hmm. And I'm struggling with that. Mm-hmm. And I just like you to clarify the purpose of so much meditation practice. Ah. <laughs> well, I suppose the quick answer to that is it's a retreat centre. Therefore, um, when you come on retreat, it's one of the things that you get the time to do that, say, in your ordinary family situation or home situation work situation, most of us don't get that amount of time to practice. So if you like, retreats are almost always by their nature intense. You know? Hence the reason for certain strictures around the retreat, such as not talking, you know, because that helps you to concentrate on what you're doing, um, everything being done in silence in this way. And also the amount of meditation that's being done is really to intensify your practice. And you know, I think everybody... I did, not just newcomers, has difficulty, often with a lot of sitting, a lot of sitting in a day. And, but it's there, in a sense, to hopefully give you enough by the end of the retreat that you'll be able to carry something away with you at the end of it. You know, it's there, in a sense, to try and give you the maximum possibility for taking something away at the end of it. And that's really the reason for so much sitting um, in this. But it's not just sitting, it's walking as well. <laughs> <laughs> right. I got worth week just Right. Well, you know, all I can say is if, you have, if you're having real problems sitting, I see you're sitting in a chair, so hopefully that makes it a little easier for a start off. Um, you know, I wouldn't always say this, but if you really do feel it's a big problem, sometimes I'm not going to be counting heads you know, you know, that's all I'm saying. But on the other hand, I would say sometimes it's good to put yourself through the difficulty because sometimes out of the difficulty something arises something very positive. Because you know, remember, one of the things I've been talking about are our resistances. And what we're often doing in doing a great deal of sitting meditation is actually breaking down some of our resistances. You know, our resistances, for example, and I don't know if this has occurred to other people here, sometimes it's just being simply bored. Yeah. yeah. We are not used to being bored. Um, the moment we're bored at home, what do we do? We switch on the radio, pick up a book, look at a newspaper, or turn on the television. You know, we, we distract ourselves constantly from actually allowing deep seated problems and insights, as you point out, from arising. Because we immediately cover them up with something. This is allowing yourself, if you like, the privilege to be bored. Sounds odd, doesn't it? But in a way, that's partly what you can do for yourself. Because the boredom itself is only indicative of something else. It's often indicative of resistance. It's a resistance to having the mind not constantly engaged all the time with distraction. So, if you can, stick with it. That's what I'd say. While we're in the process of um, discarding the habits, which, as you said, are not really us, mm. uh, how can we cope with revealing um, who we really are and where, where is it really? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, it's a big topic, and I'm, to I'm actually going to come on to that, which is really about the relation of what, or the notion of what the self is in Buddhist thought. Because the self is not... Well, I'll I'll say a few things about it this evening and then build on it like I've said some of the other things I'm going to build on and I will as we go through. I've got a little list upstairs. (laughs) But here, I mean, one of the big things is that in discovering who we really are is partly discovering who we're not as well. And the first thing that Buddhist thought and practice really tries to orientate you towards is that you're not a thing. There's no no thing like unchanging quality within you, if that makes sense. You're not, for example, intrinsically good, you're not intrinsically bad. All these kind of labels that we put on ourselves and we put on others as well. There is nothing intrinsic in there at all. What we're really discovering is not in a sense who we are, but what potentialities we have. That's really what we're trying to unleash The potentialities, I think I indicated last night, to be human. That's not to be kind of amorphous, it's still to be individuated, but it's to be human in the fullest possible sense by developing our potentialities, our capacities for that real humanness, that real connectedness with others. Which is why I've been emphasising, you know, why this course, this whole retreat is about really kindness and compassion, because that is about developing our potentiality and our connectedness to others and being with others in a really sort of dynamic way. Often when we think, and, and, and you might never use these words for yourself, often when we think about ourselves, we often think of ourselves as being this or that type of person. you know, And therefore we create a kind of static quality about ourselves. And what Buddhist? thought through its practice and it's not just a thought, it's not meant to be just a belief, it's something to be actually inquired into in meditation practice, is what we're trying to look at and try to discover is the process nature of who and what we are, that we're a process and not a thing so all we find actually are processes actually in the languages that Buddhism speaks in, primarily in its early stages Pali and Sanskrit this is why that virtually all the words that get translated into nouns in English are all verbs in the original language. You know, indicating that we're engaged in the process. Um, actually, it's not. You know, it's not kindness as such, almost as a noun. It's actually kindliness or kindlinessing <laughs> in the original language, or friendlinessing. <laughs> you know, always indicating it's a verb and not a noun. And it's really this propensity to tie ourselves down to being a thing, as I say, even if it's not expressed in those words, but just in the ways that we think about ourselves in terms of some static quality that Buddhism is attempting to overcome, which is what its so-called doctrine of not-self is. It's trying to show what you are not. Yeah? And in the process of discovering what you are not, perhaps you'll discover the potentialities of who you are. <laughs> yeah, that's a, the that's a quick answer. Um, but there's a lot more to it than that. <laughs> and certainly a lot more practice as well. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, again, a little confused. You know, the inner and active danger. What's the inner danger? Is that self-destruction? Or? Yes. Yeah, I mean, there is always a tendency to be self-destructive. There's, I mean, in fact, this is recognized because... When the Buddha speaks about craving, which is, you know, as you probably remember from last night, I said, you know, the Buddha identifies craving as thirst, as being the immediate cause of dukkha, as being the immediate cause of what we usually just translate as suffering. But he also says, you know, Buddhism loves lists. It says there are three forms of craving. You know, first there is the craving for sensual things, then there's the craving to be, and then he says there's the craving not to be. You know, and it 's in the craving not to be we see all of our destructive tendencies you know, um, so that we can destroy ourselves in the process I mean in a very serious sense, the craving not to be can manifest the suicidal tendencies you know. and so there's always this business of guarding against the guilt and the self laceration because that can culminate in this <coughs> idea of self destructiveness and in fact in a way even the craving for sensual desire and the craving not to be can be linked together which is why there's so many addictive problems around because somebody might be getting out of their heads on drink completely to obliterate themselves even albeit for a brief period of time to literally not be for a brief period of time and so these destructive tendencies are always there and this this is why we don't engage in this kind of heavy self-criticism it's acceptance of who and what we are without self-indulgence any other questions so you, you talked earlier <clears throat> maybe this is possible at this time tonight or briefly you talked you were talking earlier quite a bit about consciousness mm-hmm. and then you talking about consciousness and mind mm-hmm. is it possible to say something briefly, the distinction between oh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, mind is a generic term. Mind is a generic term. I mean, Buddhism, because of its um, focus on mind and mental processes, has so many terms for what's going on. And so, if you like, consciousness is simply a function of the generic term that we call mind. Yeah. So, Mind is the umbrella term upon which there are lots and lots of different distinctions made about the various functions of what we would call mind here. So consciousness is but one of them. Mental events is another. And then there's all sorts of other bits and pieces as well. So you were saying that consciousness is dependent and only arises with an object. They're saying that mind is there. No, mind and consciousness... This is hard on the list I would like to put shortly. I mean, consciousness is, as you rightly say, as I put earlier on, is arising at the same time as the world arises. So in a sense, mind also has dispositions. Um, So, for example, sankharas are aspects of mind. Remember I was talking about the dispositions, the habits. So those are aspects of mind which will colour the form of consciousness which is then perceiving the world. So Sankaras are another aspect of mind. Then there's another aspect of mind called Sanya, which is about discrimination. You know, so it's the discriminative capacity of mind. It's, it's very complex. I mean, it's a this huge topic, actually, the whole notion of mind in Buddhist thought. I mean, but um, I mean, just to give you an idea of the complexity of it, without really going into too much detail, but just to give you an idea of the complexity. For example, um, they say that every form of consciousness, as you heard me say, arrives as a retinue. Well, it has to have a minimum of seven different mental events, all of which are completely ethically neutral for any moment of consciousness to occur. And then there's an awful lot more of other mental events going on which then colour the nature of that consciousness as being wholesome or unwholesome. In its terms, so there are kind of seven neutral events as a minimum for every moment of consciousness that arises in Buddhist thought. And so it is complex, but there's an awful lot of terms which are used. This is why there's this huge repository in early Buddhism known as the Abhidhamma, um, which is part of the the uh, canon, which is the kind of repository of all the psychology. Um, Just to give you an idea of the scope of it, just just to finish off this part of the evening before we do another session of sitting, to give you an idea of the scope of it, the Abhidharma deals with the whole nature of mind. It's, if you like, the mind from a Buddha's eye view. And what it does is the first book of the Abhidharma, the first and the last book, and the seven books of it, uh, are the two most important ones. The first book details out all the contents of what we would call mind, all the forms of consciousness, all the possible mental events that occur, uh, including all of the physical events that occur as well. Yeah. Obviously, albeit couched in quite ancient language, the physical stuff. Now, that gives you an idea of what's going on. It's a bit like, if you like, describing what is in this room. But that'll tell you what is in the room, but it won't tell you, in a sense, how the room functions, or what the relations are. So the last book, of only which half of it has only been translated into English, which is enormous. In the half that's been translated is two volumes amounting to something like 1,400 pages. The second bit that hasn't been translated is equally as large as that. Um, and that will detail out all the possible relations between the things that have been identified in the first book. Yeah. So, in other words, it gives you all the permutations that various mental events can arise with forms of consciousness so it gives you a size of the undertaking <laughs> and now that wasn't done out simply out of intellectual interest it was done out of trying to map the mind in a way that people who are experiencing and going through Vipassana meditation could really understand what was going on in the mind it's a bit like an encyclopedia really of mental events so that you can understand exactly what is going on in the nature of mind yeah. but it's, it's a huge topic it's an enormous topic just coming back to the- <laughs> trying to do now is, is in the kind of practice we're talking about something about being, con- within that, think on, mm-hmm. being conscious of mental events mm-hmm. so that's, the, that's yep. the two bits of that we're, we're trying to work with at the moment yeah, we're being conscious of mental events which is why I say in the meditation I've said it numerous amounts of times I'll probably continue to say it for the whole week you'll get bored with me saying it but, you know, it's, it's the idea when, for example, the mind drifts away from the various mental event that you're trying to develop, which is the mental event of meta towards yourself, but then drifts off because some thought or image or something has come up, that you note it, because that is a distinct insight into what is actually arising at that moment in time. So if you can actually see it, acknowledge it, and let it go, it might not arise in exactly the same way again. It might not arise at all if you really have acknowledged it, yeah. and so it is. It's noting mental events. That's always going on. So that's why I was saying: never see the thought processes as distractions. They're not enemies. Um, we're not trying to vacuum out thoughts you know, <laughs> at all. We're trying to leave it so that you are you are noting the quality of mind as it changes from sometimes from being focused to being unfocused. Okay, I'm unfocused. What's going on? Okay, now I come back to being focused again. And that might last another couple of seconds. <sighs> Until you're unfocused again. And that's why I say it doesn't matter if it happens in 45 minute session 150 times. Or even more. It really doesn't matter as long as you're noting the process. Which is why we should ditch this completely spurious notion of good or bad meditation. If you're actually just engaged in the process of noting what is actually happening, noting when I'm focused, when I'm developing meta, noticing when I'm unfocused, watching what is going on, that is the process of bhavana. That's the process of cultivation, the process of cultivating attention to what is happening. You know? And we can ditch this horrible, horrible notion of, of good and bad meditation that people get caught up in. You know, good is when I'm focused and the time goes quickly, and bad is when it seems like eternity. <laughs> And things like that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's nonsense, really. It's just ideals that we set up for ourselves. And in setting up the <clears> ideal, <throat> we don't see what is actually going on. Because we've got our eyes focused on the ideal. <laughs> okay.